0: Job chapter 3, what a wonderful reminder this morning of the blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Uh, that is what, um, what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. It, if, if you are here this morning and and, uh, and you have never come to look to Christ for your salvation, um, perhaps you are searching. Perhaps the Lord has been working and dealing in your heart regarding your spiritual state, regarding your standing before God, regarding your eternal life. Know this: that that Christianity is not um, is not merely attending church on a Sunday morning, but Christianity is quite simply following after Christ. It is looking to Him, and so so those who, those who are here this morning who who are genuine Christians are those who have uh, renounced any hope and any confidence in their own merit and in their own righteousness and in their own goodness to be right with God. But a true follower of Christ is one who will look to him and the work that he had accomplished on the cross to bear our sins to pay the penalty that was meant for us as a substitute, as Gail pointed out, being raised from the dead, being victorious over sin, that payment was complete. He satisfied the requirement of the law, and therefore he advocates on our behalf, and we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. If you don't know Jesus today, I invite you to trust him today. Place your hope in him. Don't place your hope in your ability to, to gain access to God by something that you have done or something that you have not done. Place your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Every one of us in here who know Jesus as our Savior, who who have any have a hope and a confident expectation of eternal life, places our hope and our faith in what Christ has done. And I would invite you to do that. I, I mentioned that this morning, number one, because we sang about it. We, we, our hope and our trust is in your blood, is in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second reason I bring that up is because we're in the Old Testament, before Christ, before Jesus. Possibly, well, not possibly, very, very um, obviously, we would recognize that Job didn't even know the name of Jesus. He, 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 I believe he, he looked forward to a Messiah, one who would bring redemption. Uh, but So how did the Old Testament saints get saved? We've talked about this in the past, but just by course of reminder, uh, the Old Testament saints were saved just like you and me, by grace through faith. Now they didn't have a cross to look, toward, look back to, but they had a cross or a Messiah towards, towards which they would look forward to. They looked to the coming of this Messiah and the sacrifices and the offerings that they offered up before God as an atonement for their sin was in anticipation of the Lamb of God, which has come to take away the sins of the world. And so Job, as we read, as we mentioned last week, he is noted both by man and by God to be a righteous and an upright man. The only reason he, he could be said that of him was because God, on his behalf, had brought him to the truth of his need for a redemption. That redemption was looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the third reason why I bring up the gospel right away is because, uh, because it, it, we recognize that, that our hope for eternity is grounded in God's work in us now. That we are not merely saved for eternity to come, but we are in the process of being saved even now. That God is active in the life of the believer today, just as he is active in the world today. And he is active in our lives in the midst of this fallen world. And I think it's important for us to understand that because as we live in this fallen world, we will experience and we will need to endure hardships, heartaches, Sufferings. It is a reality of life. Now, in eras past, it was um, almost a sin to admit that you were suffering or you were experiencing a difficult time and that you were really discouraged about it. So anytime you showed up to church, you, if people asked how you were doing, your, your, your spiritual answer was, I'm, f- I'm fine, praise God, because everything is fine, fine, fine. All the while, we know that we are hurting within. Of course, we don't do that today, um, do we? <laughs> Actually, sometimes the pendulum swings to the other end, and we want a therapeutic God. Oh, I'm always, and it's always about me and my suffering, and yet when we come to the book of Job, I think it gives us a proper balance of how we view God, and really that's what we're looking at in the book of Job. We're looking at this man who is undergoing a great deal of suffering, trials, and agony within the soul, within his soul, and yet there is a sure foundation upon which he stands. Now we're going to discover later on in the study of the book of Job that he comes to some poor conclusions and he makes some accusations against God. He never forsakes God, but he makes some accusations against God, and God calls him on it. So the closing chapters of the book, God says, hey, stand up like a man, bucko. Answer me some questions. And so he has an answer for those things. But at the same time, we see that in the life and in the heart of Job, there is a sure Foundation in the midst of the trials of this world, and that's good news for you and for me. As we read this chapter, we're going to read, we're going to work our way through chapter three, and we're going to do so rapidly. Um, and that's all rapidly is a, is a matter of, of what of relative. Uh, is a relative term but we're gonna, we are going to try to move through it and then and then we're going to look back at some of the things he says in the chapter, and then we're going to look in the first and second chapter again that gives us some hints of of the foundation or the groundwork from which job suffered now when we come to chapter three um he is in the midst of three friends that are introduced at the end of chapter 2. We're not going to go there this morning. We're, we will talk about his friends beginning next week. But they sit there and they sit there in silence. And probably the best counsel that they gave and the best greatest comfort they gave throughout the entire book is in the closing verses of chapter 2. He sat beside him in silence. And I think it's. I think that is even important for us to understand. Sometimes, when when our friend, when a friend or a loved one is going through a great deal of heartache and suffering, sometimes the best thing you can do is just be there and shut up. Not always. I think eventually we want to point them towards Christ, but sometimes it's just good for us to just be quiet and just be there. So there you have some biblical counseling. Counseling. Um, let's kind of work our way through. Through the lament and the worship of Job. Um, Essentially, Job wishes he was never born. I I spent hours with Job this last week, and he really is a Debbie Downer. Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry um but there but there is a foundation, and and we want to read this in light of the gospel, in the light of who God is and what He has provided for us um in his own self, and if, especially for the New Testament saint, his indwelling holy spirit. but essentially, in this chapter, he is dealing with the fact of his birth. Why does he even live? For what reason did God allow him to be born and he would live? Um, let's begin reading verse, in verse number, um, verse number one of chapter three. After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived." Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night... It is the night that he was conceived. Let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who's, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of the dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes." Do you think he was holding back? <laughs> uh, here here it is it, in 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 complete open honesty with no facade. He is pouring out his heart to his friends. Here's where I am. I wish I had not been conceived. I wish I had not even Been a twinkle in my father's eyes. I wish I had not been born. So in Job's mind, his afflictions that he had experienced, remember he had lost everything, to every every material possession he had. This is all in a matter of hours. The reports were were given to him. He had lost everything that he had. Uh, within, Within a few minutes, he lost his children. He lost everything that he had. And then he lost his health in addition. He was in much affliction. He was in great deal of pain. And his afflictions overshadowed the goodness he had experienced so that he wished he had never been a part of this world, that he had never, ever come into existence. Now, just a note here uh, that I'll repeat later. Accounts such as this as well as throughout the scriptures that expose the frailty of the human experience and the reality of human heartache, even among those who follow after God, remind us that we live in a fallen world, right? It's a reality of this world. This world is fallen and is cursed by sin, and therefore, heartache is a reality that we face, even for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, even for those of us who's, who 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 those of us who have a hope of eternal life. It tells us that even Christians experience suffering and heartache. That we talked about last week. Even Christians experience suffering and heartache. We are not, we are not promised by God in this present world that everything will be perfect in our lives. We have not been promised health, wealth, and prosperity. We have not promised that if we have just enough faith that everything would be good, we would never lose, uh, we would never be sick again. We have never been promised that if you give enough money in the church offering that you can be delivered from all the heartache that this world has to be offered. It is never promised. God's word has never promised us that. So, Christians experience suffering and Christians do experience heartache. In addition to that, what do we find this morning? The practice of lament, as we read here with Job, as we will continue to read as we make our way through these first several chapters, that this practice of lament is not always a sign that faith is lacking. It is not a sin to be discouraged. And we're going to observe in just a minute that although Job's expression of sorrow is rash and seems to express despair, he held firm to what was true. And that's really where we're going. He held fast to what is true. Before then, let's continue reading through this chapter, beginning in verse number 11. This this next premise of this chapter is, is, is why why did I survive birth? If I had to be born, why did I survive? Look at verse number 11. Why did I not die at birth? come out from the womb and expire why did the knees receive me or why did the breasts that I should nurse for then I would have lain down and been quiet I would have slept Then I would have been at rest with the kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold or who, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. So in this portion of Scripture, his argument is against his survival as an infant. If I had to be conceived, if I had to be born, why couldn't I have just been stillborn? Why did I have to survive birth? If I had to draw breath in this world, why could it not have been but for a brief moment? Had I died at birth, Job says, had I died in birth, I could have been at rest with the many who have lived life to the fullest, but have gone. I could have done so without having to go through the heartache and the trials of this present world. The third section of this chapter asks the question, why am I still living if I, didn't, if, I, if, if I had to be conceived, if I had to be born, if I had to survive my birth, why am I still living? Verse number 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter soul, who is bitter in the soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to the man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my singing, or for my sighing, comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Job questions the purpose for continuing to live. Why am I even here? Verse 23, Job sees himself as being hedged in by God, meaning he is in a stalled condition in life. No purpose for continuing on in this life and yet not being allowed to die, ending his misery. Now, just a quick note here. um, Job understands that suicide is not an option. Job understands that life is given and is taken by God alone that is god 's role. I, I like what, what com, one commentary explained uh, this idea of the of god 's hedges. remember earlier um, Satan accused before God uh, Satan accused that God had put a hedge of protection around him this comment, this here Job mentions this that he is hedged in I am hedged in. This commentary says, Previously, God's hedge of protection about his life had ensured his well-being. But now that he wants to die, he can think only of God's preservation of his life as an artificial prolongation of his misery. The hedge has become a prison wall rather than a wall of defense Job's previous fear of future disaster explains his extreme care to ensure that no sin attached to his household. Look in verse number 25 once again in your Bibles. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and that I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. We're going to look at that a little more closely in just a bit. But, but notice this, that he did have a pure trust and confidence in the Lord. Job did have that sure foundation. But on the other hand, he did make sacrifice for his sons as, a, as the, uh, the priest of his, of his household because he thought they might sin. And so there's evidence to, to suggest that he was aware that calamity could strike, and this is not necessarily incompatible with his trust, he he was aware of, or he was concerned that it might happen that 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 terrible things could come about in his life. Now we're going to look more closely in the next chapter next week, chapter four and chapter five. Um, his his friend, his his oldest friend that is sitting about him, Eliphaz, uh, answers him, and in, in essence, and, and again we'll look at it look at it again next week. In essence. The counsel of Eliphaz is, buck up, get over it. You must have sin in your life. So Job answers that in chapter 6. And um, his real answer takes place at the latter part of the chapter. But the first part of the chapter it continues to explain his heart condition and where his mind was in regards to his suffering. So um so if, if, uh, if you will, turn with me to chapter 6, and let's just read the first few verses of the chapter together to continue this train of thought, to continue, the, to, continue to try to understand what was in the heart and the mind of Job. And in so doing, I, I, I believe, to some degree, we can identify with Job. Maybe not to the extent that he is here, but perhaps to some degree, we can identify with the heartache that he is experiencing. Verse number one of Job chapter six. Job answered um, and he said, "'Oh, oh, that my vexation were weighed "'and all my calamity laid in the balances.' For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. His argument is, if you knew, Eliphaz, just how hard it was and how heavy my heart is, if if we were able to take the heaviness of the sorrow of my heart and were to put it on a scale, you would know that it is heavier than the sand of the sea. My heart is so heavy. My heart is so burdened. I can't even bear it in within me. It is heavier than the sand of the sea. That is his this expression of his whole heart. This is what he's experiencing. And he's exposing, has being vulnerable to those who would hear him, those who were called his friends. I am vexed with calamity. I am vexed with these trials that I have experienced. My heart is aching. Verse number Four and oh, oh! Very, very quickly at the very close of verse number three. Therefore, my words have been rash. We're going to come back to that again, again. Several things we're going to come back to, but understand this: that even as Job is pouring out, he is literally vomiting out his emotions for his friends. There is an undergirding, secure foundation that helps him to know that even as he is pouring out his heart, that they, these words are rash in their expression. It doesn't mean that he didn't mean it. What it means is that he understands that there is a perspective, of see, there is a way of seeing the things that he's going through through the proper lens. And that's what we're going to look at in just a minute. Verse number four, he he points to the Lord. He says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. They're still in me. My spirit drinks their poison, and the terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does a wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. There is food that is loathsome, for, loathsome to me. What a vivid picture that Job paints for us. His, in his emotions, he saw himself as being pierced by the arrows of God himself. And that they continue to poison his heart. And not only, not only was the world world against him, he felt at that moment that even God was against him. Verse 5 reminds us that these, common, these comments refer to as rash words. There is a reason for my braying like a donkey, and there is a reason for my lowings and ox. I sense that God himself is against me. There's something wrong. There's something out of order here. Verse number 8, his, his reply is simply, Oh God, just kill me. Verse number eight, oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope. Oh, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Oh, I wish God would just finish the job and just kill me. This would be my comfort I would even exult in pain unsparing for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait and what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? And there you have it. The genuine, raw, uncut thoughts and emotions of a man of God. A man of God who lost everything that he has in this world. Among the many things that this informs us of and tells us, there would be at least two that I want to call your attention to. We've already talked about it. First of all, tribulation comes upon both the righteous and the unrighteous. Second of all, sorrow Discouragement and despair for the righteous is not incongruent with faith in God. It's okay to weep. It's okay to sorrow. It's okay to mourn. It is okay to lament. As a matter of fact, if you've spent any time in the Psalms, you know that much of the Psalms is filled with the lament of David and with the other writers of these psalms. That was the course of their life. And there's a a healthy aspect of lamentation. We we spoke about Jeremiah a, a few weeks ago who wrote the book of Lamentations that is filled with, can you guess? Lament. But there's a healthy lament that is centered upon the character of our God. Even in, even in the book of Lamentations, in the middle of the book, in chapter three, after he's been whining and accusing God for being mean and being rude and why did you do this to me, it's it's as though it's as though God, by His Spirit, opened His eyes, that He was be able to come to His senses, and He says, "Now, when I consider this, I would consider that." except for the Lord's mercies, we would be destroyed altogether. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The scriptures are replete with examples of men and women experiencing the most dire circumstances with the deepest of sorrows, This is a reality of life in a fallen world. With that said, we understand that God's people are brought into heartache and sorrow not to remain there, but rather to be crowded nearer to their Redeemer, their God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, to me, my grace, God said to him, as he approached God about a thorn in the flesh, he said, I approached God three times about this thorn in my flesh, it, it harasses me, it, it affects my entire life, and God's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, So Paul answers that and says, therefore, because God's grace is sufficient and because God refuses to take away this instrument of turmoil and of affliction, because this affliction will continue to be in my life, I will accept that God's grace is sufficient for me. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I do that so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. There is healthy lament. James, writing to the scattered saints in Asia Minor, who were scattered and displaced from their homes because of their faith in Christ, who were undergoing difficulties in their life, who were about to undergo a great deal of persecution by the emperor and by their own neighbors, he writes to them and he tells them, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, James' exhortation, James' encouragement, in the to, in the midst of those, to those in the midst of suffering, is counted all joy. Now, just and I'm going to repeat it again, just so we know, this is not a matter of the willpower of self, uh, of building self up. It's not a matter of, of the power of positive thinking. That's not what James is saying. That's not what the Scripture teaches. This is a work of the Spirit of God who convicts our heart of the goodness of God and of the care of God and of the presence of God and of the ongoing work of God and of the purpose of God in our lives. It is a spirit-revealed work of God in our life. And so James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into divers temptations. Um, um, the apostle Peter writes, it says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. You do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Finally, the psalmist in Psalm 130 says, "I wait for the Lord; my soul waits, and in His world I, in His in His word I hope." My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning; more than watchmen for the morning. So, suffering is a reality of life in this world and for many physical suffering will remain until they enter into glory and that is a reality some suffer physical ailments and physical um, pain and will do so until the day that they die sorrow and lament for the believer is good and it is from God but it is to be grounded in what is true. Despondency and discouragement may at times be a reality of personal experience, but they do not define the believer. Your identity is not to be your sorrow. Your identity is to be Christ in the midst of your sorrow. There are two words given to us in the book of Job, in the opening chapters of the book of Job, that I think will help us to see what was what it was that grounded Job before calamity struck. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job, back to chapter number one. We look at the latter part of the chapter, beginning in verse number 20. This is the first round that Satan had access to him where he lost everything, including his children. Remember, Job was wealthy beyond every other man in the East. He was the greatest of all men in the East. He had everything that life could offer at that time in his life, and at one one moment's time, in a moment's time, it was wiped out. The response of Job, I think, is really important Here's the first word I want you to to see, the word worship. That is a right view of God. Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22: In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, if you read much of the scripture, you, you you understand, or if you watch Fiddler on the Roof, you, you, you know that the tearing of the robe and the shaving of the head sounds very familiar to us, but this, this act of falling on the ground to worship, that that completes the picture of a man of God. The, the, he is entering into sorrow. He has torn his robe. He shaves his head, shaves his beard, which is, which is a time of mourning. He sits in ashes, but this last phrase completes the whole picture of a man of God. He falls on the ground for the purpose of worshiping his God. The, the author is sure to include this about Job. Conjoining the brokenness with worship calls our minds to Hannah, to many other people, but in my mind it was was Hannah in First Samuel, who, who was a barren woman, who, who was longing for a child, praying for a child in the temple, uh, who, who by... by um, Uh, Eli, the the high priest, thought she was drunk and and rebuked her. She said, no, no, I, I am praying to God out of the brokenness of my heart, asking him to give me a son. And she is there to worship her God. Or we might be reminded of Isaiah who has seen the glory of God and his first response is to fall on his face, crying, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I have a, dwell among a people of unclean lips. With Job, however, the emphasis is in verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, now don't miss this, this warning This warning here. When calamity hits, when trials come, know this, that the temptation will come to charge God wrong with wrong, that the author tells us that this was what Job did not do. He did not charge God with wrongdoing. What was it that prevented Job from immediately resorting to God-blaming? Which, by the way, God was the cause of his suffering, but it is with his purpose and with his goodness, actually. But what was it that prevented Job from immediately resorting to God-blaming? He worshiped. Now, what do you suppose that worship looked like? Our idea often of worship is, is gathering together on a Sunday morning and, and singing all these songs, and that's worship. That's fine. We talked about this a few weeks ago, I think Christmas Day, actually. Um, but, but what did it look like? Well, the author doesn't, doesn't tell us what, what form Job's worship took, what it, what it looked like, but he did tell us what it entailed. What did this worship entail? Having lost all, that this, all of his worldly possessions, having lost his ten children, having lost his health, Job's worship within his heart and from his lips saw and acknowledged God for who he is and his right to do what he was doing. And then blessing him for it. Did you get that? It is God who has given life. It is God who can take it away. It is God who has given me blessings. It is God that can take, it, can take it away. It is a right view of God that God is who, is, who he is. And he has every right to do what he is doing And for those of us who know the scriptures, we know that whatever God does, it is based upon the very essence of who he is in his goodness and in his kindness and his wisdom and his mercy and his grace. And all that he does toward his people is good so that when calamity hits, we know that it comes from the hand of a good God. We may not like it. As a matter of fact, chances are we won't. And it may take us to the very edge of what we believe we can even handle. It seems as though we might be tempted beyond measure. But there we find God faithful. He points us back to who he is and the right that he has to behave how he wants to behave. To do what he desires to do. It is a recognition that God is sovereign. And then in recognizing that, blessing him for it. Naked I came, into the, came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice that Job's response to worship was instantaneous. And it was what seemed to be familiar a familiar posture for Job. This was not something that he had to look up of how he should react. This was something, a natural outflow of his response to the turmoil, to the affliction he has just been told of, was to fall on his face and to worship. I would suggest, I, I suggest, that this indicates an inward preparation of the heart. I believe we can be, I can, without speculating, I believe we conclude that Job responded as he did because, he, because of a pre-existing condition. He knew that all things in this life could change because God has chosen to do so. And he has prepared his heart to rest in who God is. Even before the tribulation arrived, even while he was a wealthy, healthy, prosperous man, Job worshiped God as God and trusted that he would act accordingly. You get that? He didn't worship God as he thought God should be. He didn't wait till calamity hit before he decided what God was like. He understood, by what God, he understood what God was like by what God had revealed about himself. He believed it and he, he set his heart upon it and he rested upon it so that when calamity hit, it was a reality in life. He understood that entirely before calamity hit. We don't decide what kind of God we have by how he treats us or by how things turn out or how we perceive he is treating us. There's a second word, and we'll move along, is in the second chapter. This is the second wave that comes upon Job, and where he loses all of his health, and beginning in verse number nine, he received counsel from his wife. His wife came to him and said, do you still hold fast your integrity? That's the second word. The first is worship. It is It closely correlates with this word integrity. That's the word that his wife uses. You still hold fast your integrity. Here's her counsel. Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and then shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, I have been guilty not very long ago and often to make a joke about Job's wife and that she being a part of his, of his affliction, and I apologize for that. Granted she offers very poor counsel. But one commentary points out that Job did not say that she was a foolish woman, only that she was speaking like a like one of them. In addition, Job, Job, was not, Job didn't exclude her from sharing in his sufferings. Did, did we forget that his wife lost 10 kids as well? We forget that she lost everything that her husband lost as well. So with that, I want to exercise grace in referring to his wife by just moving on. There have been many, there have been many, many, there have been many people beside whose beds I have sat, who are on the edge of eternity, who are in a great deal of pain, whose loved ones prayed that God would take them out of their pain by just taking them home. There are some that I know even now who are, even now as we speak, who wonders, why why does God allow me to continue to live? I have prayed, I have prayed every day, I prayed every day that God would take me home. There is no reason for me to stay here. You know what my answer is? I don't know. I'm not God. I do not know. But I do know the God who is working. But her counsel was sort of a suicide by cop, if you will. A cry for a mercy killing. But the, the, the thing of interest in this passage is that she contrasts Job's integrity with forsaking God, and I think this gives us insight to biblical integrity. For Job's, from Job's answer, I think it's evident that she was prompting Job to forsake any notion that God was a good God and that He acted just. That He and, and to a, the, to forsake the notion that God acted in just and good and kind ways toward mankind by contrasting Job's integrity. Job's wife spoke directly to Job's conviction that God is God and that he works according to his wisdom and his goodness. In other words, in times of comfort and prosperity, when he was considered the greatest of all the people in the East, Job held loosely to the things that he had as being from God. He worshiped God for who he was and not for what he could do for him. God was not a bubblegum machine that he could simply put a little prayer in that front of it, twist it, and get his request out from it. If you don't know what a bubblegum machine is, you're missing it. <laughs> he lived with the conviction that what God had given, he could just as well take, take away. And more importantly, if he chose to take it away, he would still be God. And he would still be good. I do believe it is foolish for us to believe that we can escape trials and tribulations, afflictions and calamities. God does, God does not promise an escape from these things to his people. What he has promised is his sustaining grace through our trials. And His promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. In addition, he has revealed himself through his son, shown to us in his word he has done this so so that we can know him and we can know his ways because it is in this revelation that our faith grows i exhort you as you live in the abundance of life to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the lord jesus christ our savior worship him for who he is as he has revealed himself for what he is what he does Resist the worship of the god of your imagination or of your presumption of of what you think he is like and what you think he should act. Resist the worship of a God who fits in your way in your way of life and within the range of what is acceptable to you. Resist the worship of a God who is there to make you feel good about yourself. Worship the God of the Bible because he is trustworthy. He is faithful. He works and he acts according to his wisdom, (laughs) according to his purpose, according to his justice, according to his mercy, his grace, his goodness, and his kindness toward you. As you worship the God of the Bible, cultivate by the grace of God a heart of integrity. Enjoy the material blessings within the sphere of life, but know that all you possess is not yours to keep, they are a stewardship of God. Corey Temboom said, I have learned to hold things loosely, so God will not have to pry them out of my hands when He wants them. Are you suffering? You're going through a heartache right now? Dealing with some real issues in your life? May I encourage you to lament, to cry out to God, pour your heart out to God. But don't stay there. Cry out to God so that he might crowd you to himself. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Would you dwell under the shadow of the Almighty? The idea there is that of a, of a mother hen who draws you into to herself. Not so that you can stay there and have a pity party, but so that you can stay there and you can weep You can pour your heart out to him. You can gripe to him like Elijah did. He can tell tell you, take a nap, eat some food, take a nap again, but then get out and get back to work. It is there you will find peace. It is there you will find his care. It is there you will find your strength. May that be a reality in our lives each and every single day. Dear God, thank you for your kindness toward us. Lord, Lord, the world in which we live is a hard world, and while we enjoy the many, many pleasures and creature comforts of this world, we know that these things are fragile, that they are cursed by sin, and life can turn upside down in a moment. But in the midst of all this and in the midst of this knowledge, we know that we serve a faithful God who is unchanging in all his ways. You are the same God today that you were yesterday and you are the same God today that you will be tomorrow. You are the God who is sovereign over all things and you govern the affairs of all mankind according to your purpose and according to your wisdom and for this, and in this we rest. We rest in your care. We rest in your hands. Lord, when it seems as though you are gone, it seems as though that... That, that we don't, it seems as though the, the, the heavens are made of brass and that our prayers are not, not, not being answered. Help us, Lord, to, to know with the conviction by your spirit of God through the revelation of your word that you are there even when we don't feel it because you are God and you are faithful, you are good and we can trust you. Thank you, dear God. In Jesus' name, amen.